Support comes from AstraZeneca, a global science-led biopharmaceutical business committed to bringing to market innovative oncology medicines that address high unmet needs. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anish Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers is our way of providing you with the most up-to-date information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about the treatment of head and neck cancers with Dr. Barbara Burtness. Dr. Burtness is a professor of medical oncology at Yale School of Medicine, and Dr. Chagpar is an associate professor in the Department of Surgery at Yale School of Medicine and the assistant director for global oncology at Yale Comprehensive Cancer Center. So Barbara, you know, I think we hear a lot about cancer in the media these days, but oftentimes we hear about breast cancer, lung cancer, colorectal cancer. Tell us a little bit more about head and neck cancers. So head and neck cancers are cancers that arise in um, the, the linings of the mouth and the nose and the throat and the voice box, or that arise in salivary glands or the sinuses or in thyroid cancer. But the big majority of these cancers are cancers that start in the back of the throat, on the tongue, or in the voice box. In the past, almost all of these cancers were caused by exposure to tobacco and alcohol. But in recent years, we've seen a really dramatic uptick in a different kind of head and neck cancer, which is head and neck cancer in the tonsil or the base of the tongue or the back of the throat, which is caused by human papillomavirus. Human papillomavirus is the same virus that's been associated with cervix cancer in women for many years. Um, it's a kind of human virus that's very, very prevalent. There are 200 different types of human papillomavirus. And there are a handful of these types that are strongly associated with causing cancer. Luckily, we have a vaccine. And if people get uh, treated with the vaccine, if they get vaccinated, when they're between the ages of about 11 to 26, the evidence is very good that they'll be protected from getting uh, cancer or genital warts from um, human papillomavirus. And it's an important vaccine, both for girls and boys. But we have many people in the United States who've been exposed to this virus before the vaccine was available. Um, and we are still concerned about the possibility that these patients or these people um, could become patients by developing head and neck cancer in the back of the throat. So so first key message, I guess, is um, that this vaccine is both for boys and for girls because it's not just a cervical uh, cancer vaccine. It also protects you from head and neck cancers and both boys and girls have oral pharynxes and tonsils and back of the throats. Um, and so both boys and girls need to be vaccinated. But you mentioned that they should be vaccinated sometime between the ages of 9 and 26. What happens if you're 30 years old, you've never been vaccinated, and you're listening to this radio program and you're thinking to yourself, I don't want to get head and neck cancer. What should they do? Should they still get vaccinated or is it too late? That's an area that we probably will be learning more about as we study patients who've been vac or people who've been vaccinated. The current recommendation is to consider taking the vaccination up until the age of 26. 
um, people who are concerned should discuss it with their physicians um, and uh, stay tuned because as we develop more vaccines and, and more booster strategies, there, there may be a time in the future where we actually measure whether or not you're immune to the virus before we re- make a different recommendation about vaccination for older adults. But at the moment, the recommendation is up to age 26. And then you mentioned the other thing, which is that while HPV causes some head and neck cancers, other head and neck cancers are caused by smoking and by alcohol. So tell us more about that and um, what are the recommendations in terms of is there an appropriate, quote, safe limit of alcohol um, that people can consume without being concerned about head and neck cancer? Alcohol and head and neck cancer is probably predominantly a cofactor. So when we see patients who've had a lot of alcohol exposure and who had, have head and neck cancer of the non-virally associated kind, it is usually associated with tobacco, tobacco exposure. Mm-hmm. So if I have one message for people who are listening today, it's that if you're smoking, you should try to quit smoking. And um, there are a lot of a lot of benefits to quitting smoking. It, it improves your cardiac health. It lowers your risk of many kinds of cancer. It, in many cases, improves quality of life. It saves money. I mean, there, there are a lot of reasons to, to think about um, giving up smoking. Um, and uh, the uh, belief is that if you have been a smoker, you may continue to have an increased risk of head and neck cancer relative to people who were never smokers, but you will uh, reduce your risk compared to if you continue to smoke. So I'm sure that people are, are listening to this program and thinking, I know I really ought to quit smoking. People keep telling me I ought to quit smoking, but quitting smoking is really hard. So what are some steps that people can take in order to help them to quit smoking? I mean, because it's not... It's not so easy. That's right. It, it, it is hard. On the other hand, over half of everybody in the United States who was ever a smoker has successfully quit smoking. So I think that so people, there's hope. So there's people focus on the fact that many, many people have been able to do it. Um, they will realize that, that they can do it, too. Um, there are a lot of strategies to help people quit smoking. We have a, a very strong smoking cessation program um, here at Smilo, and um, we work hard to get to get our patients um, to think about meeting with uh, tobacco cessation counselors. I think that it helps people to focus on what are the upsides of quitting smoking. So it, it's probably somewhat easy to think about the downsides, like how much you're going to be thinking about having that next cigarette. But um, if you realize that within uh, the first couple of days of quitting smoking, you reduce your risk of a heart attack, if you focus on how much um, better your quality of life is likely to to be, the avoidance of of emphysema, the avoidance of cancer, Uh, many times there might be people in your life who've been begging you to quit smoking, and Mm -hmm. and this will make them happy. Um, Those are all things that can be helpful. As well, there are a lot of um, medical strategies now. So we have nicotine replacement, and it comes in a variety of forms. There are medications that can moderate the symptoms of, of withdrawal. So I would really encourage people uh, to look into joining a program or, or getting some counseling to uh, set, a, set a quit date, think about the ways in which quitting smoking could be helpful. All right. And especially with the new year, it's a great time to make that as a resolution. So talk to your doctor if you smoke. Now, what kind of people 
get head and neck cancer? Is it predominantly in one particular racial group or a particular age group? Or is this a non-discriminating kind of cancer that affects everybody? So the average age of people who get head and neck cancer is in their low 60s, but um, we do see people with head and neck cancer even in their 20s, and we see people with head and neck cancer in their in their 80s. So um, the very fact of, of not being in your 60s doesn't mean that if you have a non-healing sore on your tongue that you shouldn't go get it checked out. Um, people, younger people do get, get head and neck cancer. Um, people of of all ethnicities and, and all parts of the world get head and neck cancer. There are some differences. Um, human papillomavirus-related cancer seems to be more common in the United States and Northern Europe than it is in other parts of the world. Um, and as I've been saying, um, heavy exposure to tobacco and alcohol is associated um, with head and neck cancers. And so um, not sure that that's a form of discrimination, but, but people who have been mm-hmm. using a lot of tobacco and alcohol are at at a higher risk. Yeah. And, you know, I, I just got back uh, from Bhutan uh, doing some global oncology work there. I guess the other the other thing for, for people from certain parts of the world is, is chewing uh, betel nut, um, which is often mixed with tobacco. Uh, uh, do you see that a lot in Asian people in the U.S., or is that really not something that has been brought over by immigrants from other parts of the world. We do we do see a fair bit of that, um, particularly in people from South Asia. It's associated with a condition that's called submucosal fibrosis. So there's a lot of scarring inside the mouth, inside the, the, the lips and the cheeks and underneath the tongue um, that can precede the development of these kinds of head and neck cancer. And there's also a precancerous condition. We also see this in, in people with uh, cigarette smoking tobacco exposure called leukoplakia, where there are these little white uh, plaques that form on the inside of the mouth. And, and sometimes when we biopsy these, we can see that they seem to be precancerous. Um, and uh, regular dental care uh, can be helpful because dentists are very good at, at identifying these these areas of white plaque and suggesting when a biopsy should be done. Um, you know, I guess we just asked everybody who's listening and who smokes cigarettes to think about um, quitting cigarettes. But if you're listening and you chew betel nut or areca nut, I, I, I think that you should think about quitting that too because it has a strong association with cancers inside the oral cavity. Interestingly, there's a lot of great research into head and neck cancer that comes out of um, cancer hospitals in India, and they also have a lot of the kind of head and neck cancer that we do that's associated with cigarette smoking. It's not all mm-hmm. betel nut in that part of the world. Yeah. What about e-cigarettes? Are e-cigarettes safe in terms of head and neck cancer, or are they to be avoided as well? I think that that's something that we're still learning about. Um, th- they're our concerns about e-cigarettes in, in terms of are they as good a strategy for long-term quitting mm-hmm. um, compared to other kinds of nicotine replacement. But the evidence to date seems to be that they're not as carcinogenic. So um, I, I think that the jury is still out, but probably between e-cigarettes and and the pack of cigarettes. Yeah. That, that, that Avoid the pack uh, of cigarettes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So... So we've talked a little bit about risk factors and prevention in terms of vaccination. How do people recognize head and neck cancer? 
I mean, you mentioned these little white spots, kind of hard to see that in the inside of your mouth, um, or a non-healing ulcer. Are there other warning signs that people should be paying attention to um, and really going and getting them checked out without thinking that it's just, you know, a sore? For sure. For sure. So um, the sort of the seven cardinal signs of cancer that, that people have seen on posters around and, and, and stuff sort of hold here. But um, it would be an area that was not healing, um, something that was swollen or painful that was not normal. And so if, if we just um, kind of go from top to bottom in the, in the area of the head and neck, people who present with cancers in the back of the nose, those are called nasopharynx cancers, they will often give a history that they've had um, bleeding or discharge or obstruction in their nose for several years before the diagnosis was made. So chronic sinusitis should be evaluated by an ENT surgeon. There should be a careful evaluation if you have evidence that one of your sinuses is, is obstructed chronically. Then it turns out that earaches are not really common and normal for for grown adults. So an adult who has the kind of earache that in a child you would just say, oh, we'll give them a course of amoxicillin and and the child will be better. Um, In an adult, that should be taken seriously and there should be a full evaluation of the area of the head and neck. Um, I mentioned non-healing wounds on the tongue. Um, So so tongue cancer uh, with a, a mass or an ulcer that that persists over the course of months uh, is, is certainly concerning. New onset hoarseness can sometimes be a sign that there's something wrong with the, the larynx or the voice box. And so um, somebody who's developed hoarseness and it doesn't go away uh, over the course of a couple of, of weeks should think about getting evaluated. And then the last thing is if there's a swelling in um, a lymph node in the neck that doesn't get better. Sometimes you get those when you have a cold or something. But if it's not better, uh, not going down and, and, and not improving within a couple of weeks after you're over the cold, that's also something that should be evaluated. Excellent. Well, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. And when we come back, we're going to learn more about head and neck cancer, how to recognize it, how to treat it. Support comes from AstraZeneca, committed to researching innovative treatments to address unmet needs in head and neck cancer. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. The American Cancer Society estimates that over 1,500 people will be diagnosed with colorectal cancer in Connecticut this year. When detected early, colorectal cancer is easily treated and highly curable, And as a result, it's recommended that men and women over the age of 50 have regular colonoscopies to screen for the disease. Tumor gene analysis has helped improve management of colorectal cancer by identifying the patients most likely to benefit from chemotherapy and newer targeted agents, resulting in more patient-specific treatments. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and my guest, Dr. Barbara Burtoness, joins me tonight to talk about treatment of head and neck cancers. Now, before the break, we talked a little bit about prevention, a key message, make sure that both boys and girls are vaccinated against HPV by the age of 26 to really protect yourself against virally associated head and neck cancers. And key message number two in terms of prevention was to avoid tobacco, whether it's uh, pack of cigarettes or 
betel nut mixed with tobacco, all of those things increased your risk of head and neck cancer. Now, Barbara, before the break, you were telling us about signs and symptoms, uh, sores that don't heal, hoarseness that's new, earaches that are in grown-ups um, that really shouldn't be expected. Let's suppose you have one of those symptoms and you go to your doctor and your doctor proceeds through a number of tests um, and presumably a biopsy to diagnose head and neck cancer. Tell us more about the prognosis. Is that a death sentence? Um, and how is it treated? Well, the first thing to say is that many kinds of head and neck cancer are highly curable. And that's one of the reasons that we think prompt detection and appropriate workup and high quality care make a big difference. So um, you said the, the person goes to their doctor and they get a battery of tests and a biopsy. I, I do have to say that very often we hear a story that the person went to their doctor and they got antibiotics first because the natural assumption when you have a sore throat or you have a swelling in your neck is that you have strep throat or something like that. So um, and not that it's wrong to take antibiotics, but it is wrong to assume that because you took antibiotics that um, you know, everything's going to be okay. And so if you go to your doctor and you have a sore throat and a, a, a lump in your neck or a swelling in your neck and you take the antibiotics and things are not better at the end of two or three or four weeks, it is really important to go back in and get checked again. And at that point, it's quite likely that your doctor will say, I need you to see an ear, nose, and throat surgeon and send you to an ENT. And that person is, is quite likely going to pass a scope down and look around the inside of your throat and the back of your nose and evaluate everything. If uh, something looks abnormal, if there's a, a growth or a swelling, there, there could well be a biopsy at that point, and there could well be a scan, like a CAT scan or something, um, to see how many lymph nodes are swollen, to see what areas are, are abnormal. Um, and then pretty often at that point, the ear, nose, and throat surgeon will say, you know, I'm not a cancer specialist. Let's get you to somebody who's very expert in managing head and neck cancer. And um, head and neck cancer surgeons work very closely, hand in glove, with what we call a multidisciplinary team. And that involves not only the surgeon, but also a radiation oncologist, a medical oncologist, a speech and swallow pathologist who's um, expert at assessing what kind of differences in swallowing and speaking would you experience if you had an operation for a given tumor as opposed to you took radiation for that tumor? Um, and so usually you'll find yourself evaluated by a pretty like <laughs> big group of people and you're mm -hmm. like, oh wow, this is a lot of people, a lot of appointments. But the point of that is to allow then all those specialists to come together in what we call tumor board or multidisciplinary tumor board and go over the scans and the biopsy and the location of the tumor. And then there are a number of treatments that might be equally curative for a patient. So surgery followed by radiation or radiation given together with chemotherapy or radiation given by itself or surgery given by itself. Different patients will have different curative options. And our goal is always to pick the approach that has the best chance of cure as well as the best preservation of function. So if something is in your voice box and you can be cured by taking radiation, you probably don't want to have your voice box removed. Um, on the other hand, there are some areas where a tumor can be removed very simply and you might not even need radiation or you might need radiation but not chemotherapy. And so the goal in our decision making is always to find sort of the, the most parsimonious approach to the best cure with the best 
functional outcome. Now, one of the things that's been going on in our field that's really interesting is that it turns out that the human papillomavirus-associated cancers and the tobacco-associated cancers are not really behaving the same when you treat them with surgery, chemotherapy, radiation. And um, many of the treatments that, that we have um, developed over the years and that we've proven over the years can cure people might represent just the right amount of therapy for the um, tobacco-associated kind of cancer and too much therapy for the human papillomavirus-associated cancer. Mm. So we now have different trials. When, when we're looking at new treatments, we separate out the HPV-related cancers and the others because in HPV, for people who have smaller tumors and who are not smokers, a lot of our questions have to do with, could we cut back on the treatment a little bit? Whereas for the other kinds of cancer, we are still looking to add new treatments to make the cure rates higher. And so talk a little bit more about some of these new therapies. Um, what kinds of things are on the horizon? What kinds of things are, are exciting in the field of head and neck cancer? Um, because it sounds like head and neck cancer, very much like other cancers, is a moving field where new and exciting uh, things are happening that are really making this a curable disease. Yes, absolutely. So many stages of head and neck cancer are highly curable. And so we don't want to leave behind the things that have cured many patients. So, so surgery, well-delivered radiation from a radiation oncologist who specializes in head and neck cancer, those are still really good techniques. But for patients who have a, a high risk of recurrence or for patients where the cancer comes back, there are a number of really new things that we are looking at. And one of those is immunotherapy. This is not unique to head and neck cancer. It's had a big impact on other kinds of cancer as well. But we recognize that some medicines that can kind of take the brakes off the immune system and help the immune system be better at recognizing that cancer cells don't belong there. Some of those treatments are active in head and neck cancer, and they're, they're active actually in both of the kinds of head and neck cancer that I've been talking about. So for people where the cancer has come back after conventional treatment, we often look to start with a combination that includes an immunotherapy drug on a clinical trial. Or if the person gets treated with chemotherapy and the chemo is not working well anymore, we switch over to, to immunotherapy. So a lot of the clinical trials that we have open at Yale now have to do with how could we make the immunotherapy better. So instead of one immunotherapy drug, we might add a second one. Um, for people with HPV-related cancer, we can add a vaccine to HPV together with the immunotherapy. Um, we have treatments that are called targeted therapies, which, which kind of try to make the cancer cell less responsive to growth signals. And there's some evidence that um, by combining some of those, we can get better effects. We're interested in combining those with immunotherapy. So um, particularly for patients who have a higher risk of recurrence or where the cancer has come back, some of these new treatments offer a really uh, different outlook than we had a few years ago. Talk more about immunotherapy. I mean, it is, as you say, one of these hot topics and, and a buzzword that is often used. Um, certainly, it, it's a clear clinical advance amongst um, many cancers. But is it really non-toxic? Is it kind of like you're just boosting your immune system? Or does it have toxicities uh, in and of itself that people should be aware of? So the first thing to say, it is much less toxic when it's given by itself than our historical treatments. So it doesn't have the same kinds of side effects with risk of infection and, um, and you know, burn inside the throat and so forth that chemotherapy and radiation did. So 
it is easy, as you suggest, to start thinking, well, it doesn't have the toxicities that we're used to. It's a free ride. And um, the answer is no, it's not. It does have its own um, side effects. And a lot of times those side effects actually have to do with the very thing that we're trying to make happen. We're trying to make the immune system be more alert and friskier. And um, what can sometimes happen is that the immune system can start recognizing normal tissues as something that it wants to attack. And so we believe that if we give a single immunotherapy drug to a person with head and neck cancer, there's about a 17% chance that they will get those kind of immune-related side effects. And the things that we see most commonly are diarrhea or shortness of breath and cough. Luckily, that almost always responds to treatment with something that will tamp the immune system down again. So we usually use steroids. And the other thing that's really interesting is once you've had that uh, immune reaction and you've gotten those immune-related side effects, even though we're tamping down your immune system again with the steroids, it appears as if the effect against the cancer can often hold in those patients. Mm. Um, so when we when we look at new combinations, when we try to say, well, we know that this is one target in the immune system that could make it turn on again, and then this is another target that could cooperate with that. One of the things that we're looking for are combinations where we increase the effectiveness without really increasing the side effect profile. And so there are some some new strategies. Um, there's a combination uh, with a medicine called epicatastat, which is a um, kind of boosts the, the main immunotherapy target that, that we have in head and neck cancer. And it looks as if that combination nearly doubles the response rate without much difference in the side effects. Wow. And so we have a big trial going with that combination now. Um, I mentioned the, the HPV vaccine. We're also attempting for people who have higher risk disease to get immunothera immunotherapy integrated in with the first line treatment with the chemotherapy and the radiation. And because it's a different side effect profile, it looks so far as if that's something that's going pretty smoothly. So it's interesting when you mention the combination of immunotherapy and the vaccine, um, because I had a few questions about that. The first is, I thought the vaccine was something that you could only give until the age of 26. But clearly, patients with head and neck cancer tend to be older. And then the second question is, when we think about vaccines, we think that the way that they work is you get exposed to an antigen and your immune system comes in and it uh, it it goes and fights the uh, the antigen. So how does that work with immunotherapy? Are they synergistic? Different vaccine is the first thing to say. So um, there are preventive vaccines, and the, as we talked about before the break, and then there are therapeutic vaccines. And in this particular vaccine, we are actually targeting a bacterial toxin to something that's made by the HPV virus. Mm. And um, that is meant to uh, lead the virally infected can cancer cells to um, die and shed their antigens and provide a target for the immune system. So it is really a different mechanism than like your standard measles vaccine or something like that. Very interesting. And so the other thing that you had mentioned a while ago is we kind of shift from talking about immunotherapies and, and kind of the medical treatment. Now, at least in breast cancer, you need to get radiation every day. And so you may be in a community where there isn't uh, you know, uh, a particular radiation oncologist who has specific expertise in head and neck cancer. How important is it that you travel 
um, to to get that expertise? Or is the radiation schedules in head and neck cancer not on a daily basis? Our radiation schedules are on a daily daily basis, and, and we understand that this is a a challenge for patients. Um, the data seem to be pretty strong, though. They come um, both from collections of, of patients who were treated on research protocols, as well as very large national databases. You know about the SEER database, which represents over a quarter million patients treated with cancer around the country. Um, and so if you if you look at these uh, large databases, and there, and there are a number of publications that have come to the same conclusion, Getting treated for a head and neck cancer by a radiation therapy doctor who does um, a large number of head and neck ca- cases a year is associated with a substantial improvement in outcome. Dr. Barbara Burtness is a professor of medical oncology at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.